This podcast is brought to you by Onnit. Go to Onnit.com and look at the great selection of supplements. If you find something you like, press in code Joey and get 10% off delivered right to your house. What's happening, you bad motherfuckers? It's Monday, December 5th. It's a whole new month with a whole new set of fucking rules. Get ready, savages, this Saturday. UFC 282 is here. There's only one place you can bet like Uncle Joey. DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. They got a deal for you that's going to make your pubic hairs fucking crinkle up. This Saturday, new customers can bet just $5 on a pre-fight money line. You ready? $5? Pre-fight money line on any fighter to win. And once they get the job done, you win 150 in free bets. Listen, I've got Darren Till this week. Bryce Mitchell is fighting. We got a tremendous card. Right now, everyone can earn a 50% boost when you place the same game parlay on UFC 282. Download the app now. Use promo code Joey and bet $5 pre-fight money line on any fighter to win the fight. If you get 150 if they do, that's code Joey. This Saturday at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. And listen, we got a Monday night football game tonight. So you get the party started tonight. Let's get this party started right now, though. The joint is here on a Monday morning. What's happening, you bad motherfuckers? It's Monday, the 5th of fucking December. It was a great weekend. We're already in goddamn fucking December. We're in it to win it, Jack. You know, like I was watching, oh, Sons of Anarchy, when the fucking guy goes, I don't want to go to war. And he goes, son, we already in it. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're already in it. It's getting cold, and uh, it's December. That's it. It was a great fucking weekend. Um, hung out with the girls. No comedy. I didn't do dick. Worked out, went to a Gracie uh, seminar on Saturday, got my blue belt at the fucking promotion finally. I got it the right way. I did the fucking steps. I did the classes. I don't really think I'm a blue belt, but uh, I went up there with an open mind, to be honest with you guys. I'm like, I'm not getting no fucking blue belt today, and I was fine with that. I'm just, listen, for me, in my world, I'm an old man. I'm not trying to go to the no-gi worlds or the worlds or nothing. I'm just trying to get in shape, meet new people, you know, fuck around a little bit, get hurt, get choked out. That, that's it. But I'm really happy. You know, I tell you guys all the time that, listen, you might not be good at something. Stand-up, for me, what do you think? I fucking got up on the stage and people were giving me fucking props. No, it's a journey, and it's sticking with it that 
is so beneficial. Like anybody could fucking quit anything. Anybody. Sticking with it is what people usually don't do, you know. And again, you know, I learn from my mistakes and I try to, the mistakes I really made, I always try to correct them. When I first joined jujitsu, I was getting information from everywhere. And it, it was very confusing for me. My schedule was fucked up. There was weeks I could train. I couldn't train. And I didn't think I gave myself a fair chance. I really loved Alberto Crane School where I got my blue belt. I loved subconscious. But I was always missing something. After I tore my hamstring, I, I was like, that's it. I'm not going to be able to do shit anymore. In fact, I gave a bunch of my geese away. I saved like two geese. And when I got here, I got bored one day, and I was just Googling shit, and I saw that there was a Gracie school. And I went up there, and I really liked what they did. I liked the program. It, was, it wasn't a California-type program. It was a, a slower, more fundamental program. And I went, and man, I tell you, I struggle. I struggle every fucking class. But I show up. And uh, I'm a little older. I understand that. I have to give myself a breather. Like, you have to, when you start jujitsu, they tell you to check your ego at the door, which you should be doing in all aspects of all your life. But at my age, I really got to go in there and check my ego at the door. There's not much I can do. But just showing up, man, doing the warm-ups, trying the best you can, laughing with people, it makes a world of a difference. And if it gets me a little healthier, listen, at my age right now, all you keep hearing, even fucking Thor. Look at fucking Thor. Thor is like a guy that eats fucking carrots and lifts weights and drinks fucking carrot juice and shit. And he's taking six months off because he's got some gene or something. Oh, yeah. But he's got dementia. You know how much that scares me? You know what I live with right now? I live with my friends telling me about their parents and how hard it is to fucking... I have a friend right now that... He's the sweetest guy in the world. I've known this guy for fucking 40 years. I mean, just a gentleman. And his mother is in hospice. You know, she doesn't even know who she is half the time. The father, you know, it's it's fucking rough. So dementia scares the fuck out of me. Like, we did cocaine. We smoked reefer for 40 fucking years. I got hit in the head a couple times. I'm a little concerned. So that's why... When you get older, I like to do things that involve your mind, involve steps. When you do jujitsu, I grab you. Let's say it's a, it's a fucking arm bar from the clothes guard. I got to pull your arm, put my leg on your fucking hip, you know, fucking throw this leg over, take your balance off, and then push your face away so my leg can get over. Those are steps. It's six steps. So you have to memorize those steps, and that's that will help me with dementia when you hit the bag. You do combos, right? I'm not Muhammad Ali, but you do little combos. You break a sweat. All those little, uh, you know, jab, uppercut, left hook, fucking right cross, all that shit and reputation, and repetition, reputation. It must, it must fucking help you the fuck out, you know? So this is why I'm into this stuff. I, people always say to me, yeah, but you do that. Guys, I'm harmless. I, I can't do anything. I, my flying through the air days have come to a fucking end. But just showing up, I can't say this enough to people. Just showing up. And guess what? Some days you're going to have shitty days. You might have two shitty days. You have a shitty day at the gym. You go to the gym and you're not feeling it and the weights. And But then you go in there some other days and you're fucking throwing things around like fucking Thor. You're throwing weights around and people and, you know. 
So you have bad days and good days, but the most important thing is not to give up. You know those guys in jiu-jitsu, what they always say to me, man? And it means the world. The other day when I got the blue belt, when I walked up to Hollis, and I was like, Hollis, I'm not ready for this. And he goes, yes, you are. He goes, I know the first time you got your blue belt, you think you weren't ready. This time you're ready. You're putting in the work and just keep showing up. They have a multitude of classes you go to. You go to classes and not roll. You go to classes and drill. You go to classes and get killed. So I'm happy I go in there. It's uh, it's more of a therapy for me, honest to God. The first time I went to jiu-jitsu was the day of the Many Saints in Newark premiere. And I was petrified. I had a horrible fear of fucking COVID. Horrible. Now I walk into a COVID cave. I don't give a fuck. I walk into it doesn't matter. But guys, at first, it, it really jarred me, the fear. And I still remember him calling me, me walking upstairs to a room and fucking going. Like, it was just me and him in the class. We're doing a private. Sean, who also got his brown belt yesterday. I fucking, this is my little brother. This is my son. I love this little Irishman. He's the one that made me go back in there, and I'll never forget walking out of there that first day. I'll never forget him being in my closed garden, breathing on me, and me going, if I'm not dying by this, you know, I didn't even want people breathing on me, my back, my, so I wouldn't leave the fucking house. Just the fact that I went there and did it, when I got up off that mat, I did a horrible job that day. I couldn't even fucking breathe, but when I walked down those stairs, I was like, this is what I needed to eliminate that fear. And I got in the car and went right into the Beacon Theater and I walked out and there was 2,000 fucking people there. And I'm like, here we go. We're going to die again now. But I fucking didn't get COVID. The point is that that jujitsu eliminated my fear. And then three months later, I ended up getting COVID and here we fucking are. But I'm really happy that I fucking walked in there. And, you know, a lot of these guys always said to me, Joey, we wish we could get our fathers to come in here. Like, I, like every four classes, a guy will go, man, I was talking to my wife and I told her, you come in here. And she's like, he's a real fucking dude, you know, because in L.A., guys like me would take private classes and I don't want nobody else in the gym. And me, why join jujitsu if you're not going to be involved with people? That's what part of it is. It's human touch. It's grabbing. It's pushing. And at the end, you shake hands. I mean, it. you laugh your fucking ass off. And it's like my daughter. I watch my daughter. My daughter does basketball. She's got a little circle of friends. I don't know how many times I'll tell my daughter, all right, we're going to kickboxing today. We're going to Fat Joe's. And she's like, I don't know, Dad. And as soon as I walk in the door with her, she's giggling with these fucking kids because you have a whole new set of friends over there. And now we're going to start doing more things at night and dinners and shit like that. But it's just a way of life. And if you're a little lost or confused or, yeah, whatever the fuck you're going through, it might be the answer. This is a kid that I had on my Patreon, Kurt McPeak. I love this. Kurt's a bad motherfucker. Kurt joined. Kurt went up there. Kurt told me, you think I should go? And I go, Kurt, Kurt's a little shy guy, very personable. He goes up there. He just got a second stripe. He fucking goes to double classes. Kurt walks with Lee on the Patreon. You know, he's just a sweetheart of a kid, and that's a feather in my cap. For me, when I see Kurt up there, Kurt will hit me on Patreon. I went to two classes. I'm sore as fuck. I can't walk. My eye is sore, you know. But he'll always thank me. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the advice to come up here. It's fucking great. The guys are great. 
So I'm very happy. And like I said to you, if you, you're lonely, you're fucking out of shape, I mean, whatever. Listen, just join. Don't tell me that, well, I need to get in shape. Just join. You'll get in shape as you go. And the people will take care of you more than what the fuck you think. Guys, people take care of you in jiu-jitsu. Oh, my God. There's certain guys, the older belts, they'll come over and go, don't do this, man. Don't do this. Do this. Don't let this fucking animal get on top of you, you know. So trust me, it's a different fucking world. I never thought I would love this world. I mean, I'm an old man. I got nothing going for me, but I go. And there's a guy that's 69 that kicks my ass every time I go. There's another guy that's 65, Charlie. I'm going to go see him. He's at Gracie and uh, Long Branch. And all these schools are connected. So you could train at Gracie Middletown, Gracie Old Bridge. I can get in the car tomorrow and go to Long Branch. Or I can get in the car tomorrow night and go to Gracie fucking... Uh, that's where my daytime teacher is. That's I love that. Gar Hardgrove... Gar Garland or something like that. Garwood. Gracie Garwood. So you can train at all these different schools. And guys, it's like next Sunday. I got to go to a fucking, uh, uh, fucking school at Long Branch is doing that grand opening. You know? So uh, this is what, you know, you go, you talk to people, you eat some fucking Brazilian food, you get an acai bowl, you eat the granola and the fruit, and you call it a fucking night. What else has been going on this week? I've been getting a lot of fucking hits lately. Some people goof on me, and I, 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 you know, some people call me, you know, whatever. Uh, cocaine bear is coming the fuck out, and it's all over the place. So people hit me up. Listen, here it is, plain and simple. And if you don't believe me, even Michael stick up for me. I was the first person to talk about that cocaine bear thing. And I'll tell you the fucking story to it before you get all confused and shit. I lived in Snowmass Village in 84, and... When I went to Aspen in 84, my whole mind, like, when I went to Colorado, I was a fiend already. Not an addicted fiend. I was just, a, like, a little fucking young coke fiend. I was 19, and uh, Scarface hadn't come out yet. We didn't even know the basics of cocaine. Some people knew it. Some people didn't. I had grown up with it. It was in my mother's bar. I saw it in my house. I, you know, I just kept my mouth shut about it, but... When I went to Aspen, the first thing that happened was I got a, the guy who talked me into going to Aspen was Jimmy Burkle, God rest his soul, but the the guy who convinced me was my cousin Tweety. Tweety's a bad motherfucker, he's about 68 now, lives in Miami. Uh, Tweety, I just bumped into him one day after I spoke to Jimmy Burkle, and I'm going, I'm thinking I'm moving to Aspen, he goes, I got a house in Aspen. I go, what? What are you talking about? He goes, I got a house in Aspen. If you come up, come visit me, Maroon Bells, all this shit. And I'm like, what do you, how does a guy from West New York get a house in fucking Aspen? And he goes, all oh, the people I work with. But I didn't know who we worked with. I, you know, whatever. So he gave me a number and uh, whatever. I fucking got that Snowmass Village. I lived in Basalt first. Moved to, when I lived in Basalt, I did a little coke. I had to go to Carbondale to cop it, you know, like just a half gram every other week, shit like that. When I moved to Snowmass, there was a lot more cocaine around. Now, it's 1983, guys. By this point, when I left North Bergen in 83, in April of 83, cocaine was around. You know, people were doing it. People had it. You could go into the city and get it. When I went to Aspen, when I went to Snowmass Village, Colorado, whatever, when I got there, you know, 
when I got to Snowmass Village, like I said, I was snorting coke and stuff, but I saw that the coke world was a little thicker up there. And for people who don't know this, and you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you, and you could Google it, when I got to Colorado in 1983, I'll never forget one of the first times I went to Aspen and bought cocaine, and somebody said to me, bro, you're at the right place if you like coke. And I'm like, I love cocaine. And they're like, you're at the right place because Aspen is the cocaine capital of the United States. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's Miami. And they're like, no, it's not. Because Aspen, Gunnison, all those places are the uh, where they store it to go to Minneapolis, Idaho. It's mid-country. Denver is mid-country pretty much. And it's a port. You can take it to California, you know, Arizona, New Mexico. So that, you know, that was the thinking back then, I guess. But I remember I was in a bar called Patty Bugatti's one time, and some guy was telling me that you're at the right place, man. You're at the capital of cocaine, Aspen, Colorado, the mother of Pearl. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I started buying coke in Aspen, and that shit was to a different fucking level. That shit was glass. You know, the coke that they were getting up in that, and it was $100, sometimes 110 They were not fucking around. And tight counts, I mean, you got a tight fucking gram. But cocaine was everywhere, you know. I didn't know any players. I love to tell you I knew Pablo. I didn't know anybody, right? I knew nothing. But I would hear different things, you know. I became a burglar in Colorado, in, in Snowmass Village, so... I would hear different things. I, I always played the guy that didn't do coke. If I bought coke from a dealer, it was from my roommate that worked for VPM. He didn't want nobody to know he did coke. So he didn't want to buy it. So everybody always knew I was a reefer head and a fucking weightlifter. That had nothing to do with cocaine. They knew I didn't drink. They knew I just smoked pot. So when coke started missing up in Snowmass Village, nobody looked at me because they would go, he don't do coke. He's a fucking pothead. But these guys were all part of a network, okay, that I, there was a guy named, I don't know, I don't remember what his name was, sweetheart of a guy, and there was a girl named Keels that was a piece of ass, beautiful. They got rich right before my eyes in 83. I got there in April, I moved to Snowmass in June, and by fucking the time I left in January, these guys were driving fucking new cars. It was insane how fast cocaine was moving, but especially up there. And that the coke I was getting in Aspen was way better than anything I was getting here at the time. And we're close to Union City. Union City's a Cuban fucking hub, Marielitos, all that shit. When they came in to the picture, cocaine was everywhere here. But when I went to Aspen, the cocaine was a lot better. When I got back from Aspen to New York in February of 84, cocaine was fucking everywhere here. But let's get back to the cocaine bear. So my cousin told me he lived in Maroon Bells. If you Google Maroon Bells, it's fucking beautiful. It's like a mountain. It's fucking gorgeous up there. And he told me that he lived next to Jack Nicholson. And I remember taking a bus up there one day and going, I'm just going to knock on his door because I kept calling him and leaving messages, calling him and leaving messages. And I finally walked up there one day. It was like a fucking two-mile hike going upward and fucking altitude. It's 90 degrees. And I went to his house, rang the door, but nobody answered. And next door is where Jack Nicholson lived, and there was a fence there and shit. But when I walked down from there, I remembered that 
God damn, I saw a lot of Mercedes and Porsches. And, you know, this is like a snow community. At that time, you saw Subarus and, like, trucks and shit, but there was all this, you know, these Porsches and shit. I just started hearing little rumblings and stuff like that. And on December, like, 12th, the anniversary's coming. <clears throat> this dude got, maybe a little later, in 83, this dude, Stephen Graybottle, got arrested. And it was huge. It was all over the news. Everybody had known about this guy, but those people I mentioned, Keels and a buddy from Mankato, Minnesota, kind of went underground when this guy got nailed. Because I remember I was looking for coke, and people were like, dog, things are bad. The kingpin just got fucking nailed. And the, the numbers were just, they were unbelievable. He was making $6 million every six weeks. He was bringing in tons from, he was a Jewish kid from Miami that moved to Aspen. He became a skier, not a professional. He just skied. He never even saw the cocaine. He just called it around like where it was going. His cocaine from Miami went straight to Minneapolis and the other half went to Hawaii. He was supplying Hawaii with coke right from that fucking spot in Aspen. And nobody... Nobody was fucking with this guy. I mean, it, it was just like he would put money in different. As the after he got arrested, all the stories came out that the guy was making so much money that he would go to somebody like Mike that had a restaurant and go, "Mike, I love your food here. Do you mind if I get a safe and put it in the freezer and pay your lease every month?" And who would who wouldn't turn? My lease is eight thousand. You sure you want? Yeah, I'll pay it every month. Just let me put a safe in your freezer. And then he would run tabs at those restaurants. So he would come in and go, Mike, here's $50,000. Tell me when you need more. And you're like, $50,000? You could eat in here for fucking ever. Like, you could eat in here until fucking uh, San Gennaro day. So, so he's just giving it away. He was just, no, he was putting it in restaurants and businesses to hide it because he was making so much fucking money. When he got arrested, this motherfucker had... $900,000 in a garbage can outside with leaves on top of it. He had like $1.6 cash in his house. And when they took him back to Denver, the DEA in Denver said, no, 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 go back there. There's more money. We got him on a wire. And how they nailed this motherfucker was through his garbage. They would pick up his garbage and look at his measurements and all that shit. They didn't find no cocaine. They didn't find a, a scale, nothing. They couldn't tie him to cocaine. You're like, Joey, how does this tie into a fucking bear? It's coming, cocksuckers. <laughs> so now I saw the fucking, like, I'm hearing all these numbers. And then in the middle of that, a, a heroin kingpin died in Aspen. He was a kingpin in Chicago. I'm the, this is all, like, within a week or two. And one day people were like, don't go on 82. That's the main road from Aspen to Glenwood Springs. They go, don't go on there because there's a fucking funeral. Some guys in the funeral getting seen through from Aspen to Old Snowmass. I swear to God, guys, I did not see this. They had the guy, he was a black dude that was filthy fucking rich. They had him up in the car with $100 bills in his hands uh, in the fucking casket and shit. This is crazy. So I'm saying, what the fuck goes on up in fucking Aspen? And then to top it off in Old Snowmass, right at the same time, some guy 
there was a huge story in the paper. The feds tapped some guy. Now, wait, you're like Joey. This is Aspen. There's a small place, a DEA bust, a drug, the heroin kingpin from Chicago. And now this story, the fucking feds were watching this guy, this coke dealer in old snow mass. And they wired, you know, like they went to the fucking fuse box or whatever the fuck it is. And they wired him. The only problem was the feds fucked up with the wiring. So every time people would turn their TV on, he was coming on the TV. Guys, you can't write this shit. You cannot write this shit. He would come on the TV. So his own neighbors were calling him up going, Mike, I can see you taking a shower. Mike, you're over there eating breakfast. Mike, you're eating dinner. So he turned around and uh, sued the feds for like millions of dollars because they were programming what was going on in his house to all the other homes in the fucking area. This is crazy shit. And in the middle of all this, one day, there's an article in the paper in the Aspen Times. And it was like in the third page. I thought I was fucking hallucinating. All right? I thought I was fucking hallucinating. There's this huge story about uh, that they found these bears or they found one. Let me not get this. I don't want people coming back at me going, Joey was one bear. Okay. They found a bear dead next to a duffel bag next to cocaine. This was in Aspen, or a couple miles away from Aspen. Guys, the story for Cocaine Bear happened in Atlanta, Georgia, in the mountains of Georgia, I think. Yeah, it's nothing to do with my story. But I still remember reading that, and then weeks later, they had found three or four more bears. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> And with that, now for a word from my motherfucking sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If life came with a user manual, things would be easy for everybody, but they don't. It doesn't. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. I was stuck for a long fucking time when I moved here. Navigating a career change, a new relationship, moving. Listen, anything that makes you feel uncertain is going to make you feel a little creepy. Therapists are trained to help you learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing you'll get to a user manual for yourself. Listen, I was with, uh, I was a little confused after my move. Somebody referred me to BetterHelp, and here I am two years later, slinging dick with three hands. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers you video phone and chat therapy sessions. If you don't want to see anybody on camera, you don't have to. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched three million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable, and guess what? You're not gonna find a therapist that wants to see you in a week. With BetterHelp, they can take care of you in three days. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match you with a therapist, and if things ain't clicking, they can switch you to a new therapist. You couldn't be any simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first order at betterhelp.com slash Diaz. 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Diaz. Betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash Diaz. Thank you for listening to The Joint. Yeah, so they were fucking dead as disco. By the way, betterhelp.com, 
fucking tremendous, okay? And I'll tell you why in a second. Anyway, dead as disco, this fucking, these bears. And they had a big write-up about them. You know, I, I never fucking saw any of these bears. I never hung out with these bears. I didn't know the people who, uh, you know, were drug. You know, I'd love to tell you, I, I knew the guys. I was in the bottom with flashlights, you know, with fucking flags to dump the coke. It wasn't me at all. But that's, guys, when I tell people, like I did a podcast that joined about two years ago, and I talked about the people that were around me in Aspen. Guys, it was fucking weird. And then I left. I was homeless. I became an addict, the whole thing, and I went back there. I ended up going back there like in uh, October of 85. And guys, when I went back to Colorado, that was just a cocaine factory. When I went back to fucking Snowmass Village in October of 85, I wasn't doing coke. I didn't snap till I stayed in Aspen two months before I broke. I made it to a year. I think I got high New Year's Eve, 85, and then I started getting high mildly. But through the ranks, guys, there was some wild shit going on up there. Shit that I think about now, and I'm like, what the fuck? You know, I was just a plant. I didn't have any money. I worked at a video store. You know, I shoveled some snow. I made ends meet. I did little hustles. I hooked people up with a pound of weed. Stupid shit like that. But I was going day to day pretty much. So I wasn't even buying that type of coke. But I was hearing this shit that was in the... And then after June, when I was there, June of 86, I said, fuck it. My friend Danny, who I got, I owe him a call. I haven't spoken to this guy in months. Called me and he says, I got some great coke I want you to try. And he came out from Jersey and I tried it. It was fantastic. And it was $1,000 cheaper than what they were asking for in Aspen. So I knew even if I cut the price by 500 I was still making money hand over fist. I would be an idiot not to get involved in it. But once I got involved with that cocaine batch and I started running in those numbers and selling guns, Guys, I was hearing some wild shit. The thing that I still cannot ever get out of my mind, like I think of all my stupid stories and all the crazy shit I did. You know, I was going back east like every other Wednesday, every Wednesday and picking up a quarter of a kilo and I was bringing back guns. And I would do this from fucking uh, maybe September, and I did it till maybe December, maybe August. August, yeah, a little like that because it was the summer. I started early, and I made some good money. And when I started making money and I started selling some coke, people started coming out of the fucking woodwork at me. And that's when I started keeping the guns. And, yeah, some of it was the paranoia from the cocaine. I get that. But, man, people started coming at me from all directions to take... For, for me to stop getting the coke from New York and for me to buy the coke from them. Now, here I am, just a fucking ounce dealer. I, you know, I love, again, I love to tell you I had bitches and helicopters and I was just an ounce dealer. And I, if I cut it with like seven grams, it gave me 35. I sold 30 grams, I made some money, and I fucking uh, snorted five fucking grams of coke. I wasn't doing nothing out of this world. But the people that were approaching me were starting to get me out. Guys, and you know I'm not a scary cat. I was like, these fucking people are not, you know, every time I'd meet with somebody who wanted to sell me coke, I would notice a gun. 
and I go, what the fuck, you know, in, in North Bergen and shit for years, I, you know, I hung out with savages, but nobody really had a fucking gun on them. You know, every time I go to hug these guys or to shake their hand, there was always a gun or a knife. These guys were ready for fucking war. But the time that blew me away was that dude, Keels' his friend, came up to me and then he goes, hey, man, there's more to this story. When I came back in to L.A., to Colorado in 85, you know, I I was a doorman. I was security at a hotel, and I was a, a, a bellman. You know, like a bellman, I was security. And I had to make runs to the airport at night. So Dan Grabo got arrested in 83, December of 83, in that cocaine thing. When I got back to Aspen, I didn't, you know, what do you think? I was thinking about Graybow. What happened to him? I didn't know any, I didn't know the guy. But when I got back, I heard that he was going to go on trial. It was all over the papers that there was no cocaine involved, that he was a kingpin, but he was going to go on trial for money laundering. That's all they pinched him on was the money laundering. Okay. You know, and they're talking about Graybo. Again, it's not like I'm hanging out in Aspen, jumping up and down. I'm, I'm a poor fucking ounce dealer in Snowmass Village. I wasn't going to those clubs up there. I knew about the Paragon and shit like that, but that wasn't my cup of tea. And one fucking December, like right around the fucking holidays, one night you heard a bunch of ambulances and cops were coming. You know, you could hear them on 82. And the next day, it was in the paper. They fucking put a car bomb in Grable's fucking car and blew him the fuck up 24 days before his trial in Denver. You could read this. This is common knowledge. Dan Grabo, G-R-A-B-O-W. Dan Grabo was at the Aspen Club lifting weights like he did four or five nights a week. The Aspen Club is like, they charge you 20 bucks just to walk in, another 100 for a towel, one of those fucking places. Every night when he left to work out, then he would get dressed and go out at night, but he would work out late, and he would give the valet 20 bucks to start his car up. 20 bucks to start his car up. That night, the valet wasn't there. So he went out to start his fucking car. He had a regular Jeep. They put a pipe bomb under his fucking seat, and ba-boom. The pipe bomb went right in his ass, but it was it was like the, the De Niro movie fucking... Uh, casino the jeep the year he had the jeep had an extra metal plate underneath it so it didn't really blow him up it blew him up he lit on fire and he really bled out he he was alive after the car bomb <clears throat> he made it to the hospital and he died at the hospital that didn't affect me i didn't know the guy but what i didn't know it it affected all the cocaine dealers around the area so now everybody moved up a notch Everybody was moving up a notch. Everybody was scrambling to get coke. I guess Kelly and this guy were getting coke from this guy. So after he died, like the smoke cleared. And that, it was that summer when I started dealing coke. So again, I didn't go to his wake. I wasn't involved with any of those people. What had happened was I called Kelly one day and she was like, listen, man. Uh, I know you're paying a thousand dollars. I think at that time I was paying, I don't know, ninety eight hundred for thirteen ounces or something like that. And she goes, I'll tell you what, if I can make you the same deal, would you stop going to New York and buying our Coke? And now I'm like in demand. Like I'm like, oh shit. Uh 
I'm living Miami Vice. You know what I'm saying? People are calling me. Like, I'm like, all right. I can live with this shit. And uh, I fucking uh, take the meeting. Guys, again, I've been in some scary situations, weapons. The guys call me and they go, uh, you know, go to a fucking uh, pay phone and call us. So I went to the Snowmass Center there and I called them and they will call you back. It was like real fucking hush hush, like, you know, and they will call you back in like five minutes. No names on the phone, all that bullshit. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, listen, we'd like to meet with you. Give us an address and we'll pick you up. I'm like, okay. And they fucking met me like a day later or some shit. And I got in the car. And the guys were cool. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Yeah, blah, blah. I, I had a gun on me. You know, I didn't know. I'm not. So right away, guys, I had a gun on me. Like, that's never fucking good. You know, that just shows you the people I was running with. And we drove to Woody Creek somewhere. And then they go, listen, can you do us a favor and put a fucking blindfold on? And I'm like, are you fucking guys crazy? I put the blindfold on against my best wishes. <laughs> I get to the fucking place. They search me. They take my gun. They're very nice. Walk this way. Follow us. And when I get in, they go, we got to ask you another favor. Do you mind putting a bag over your head? And I'm like, what the fuck? You know, I already got the things on my eyes. I can't see nothing. They're like, this guy, these guys that talk to you want to be very secretive. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Back to fucking everybody's Miami Vice, weighing the coke and putting it in a thing and shaking it, giving them the money. I, I don't like none of that shit. So they were like, Joey, you know, we've heard great things about you. We know you're loyal, blah, 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 blah. You got bought all this shit. And they're like, we want you to do business with us. You know, fuck it. And then they just started spilling their fucking guts. You know, talking about they get a shipment every two weeks and it comes right to them. I wouldn't have to go anywhere. And then they go, if you're interested, we'll let you fucking know what to do. The guys that drove you here. I said, I'm interested. How much can you pick up every two weeks? I told them, and they go, okay, we're in business. We'll give you a call when we're ready. Go home now. Thank you for coming. I go, okay. And I'm like, what the fuck? I take the bandage off. They put blindfolds back on me. And now we drive like 10 minutes, and they go, take it off. And the guys are like, listen. When you hear this story, this is when you got to say to yourself, because I've told this story on the church and shit, you got to ask yourself, what the fuck was going on? On the way home, these motherfuckers say to me, listen, we don't give you the coke hand to hand. Never. You'll never see us again. What you need to do is join the Snowmass Club, which was cousins with the Aspen Club where they blew up Graybow. I smell conspiracy. Do you smell conspiracy here? So the Aspen Club, Snowmass Club. You're going to go to the Snowmass Club and join. And when you go there, on certain days, we'll tell you what day to go there. You give the front counter girl money, and you go work out like you, you do all the time. But on the way out, the coke will be in your locker. This is like fucking mind-boggling. Like This is like I'm like... Am I living a fucking movie? Am I living an episode of Miami Vice? So <laughs> I tried to fucking go down there and they're like, oh, how long do you want to join for? And I'm like, you know, eternity. I'm like, I'm confused. I don't know nothing. <laughs> and right, and they're like, 
with the best package is to sign up for the first year. And I'm like, oh, great. Give me the paperwork. I'll sign up. And Doug, they were like, do you want the executive package or something? Else? I didn't even know what to say. And they're like, it's like 1500 a year to join. And they need like $800. And I'm like, what? Like it was, I don't even know for fifteen hundred. It was a number that was no, because you went down there. It was a gym, but you could play golf, and you could steam bath, and you could smoke cigars with guys, and you could fucking you know, you could just do all this stupid shit. Like it's a whole day. I was I was gonna go down there lift some weights, maybe fucking swim a little bit and get the fuck out of there, pick up my coke. But when they told me that, like they're like, no, you gotta go to the gym. Give the girl the money and then go to your locker, work out, and pick it. You cannot fucking just get the coke and leave. You got to go through the whole rigmarole, the whole fucking thing. So so they're like, okay. So I went down to the joint. I couldn't afford to join. I didn't want to fucking join this gym. And they're like, okay, if you don't want to join the gym, you have to become a volunteer. So I became a volunteer fireman. That's the reason I became a volunteer fireman was to get the free subscription so I could go in there and buy my fucking cocaine. Listen, guys, I, I lasted as a volunteer fireman for maybe a month and a half or two fucking months. I, I was never a volunteer fireman. I think I, I took the training and I showed up to like two fires and I'm like, come on, I'm going to sit around with eight fat guys putting on a, a dumpster fire. Give me a break. I'm, I'm going to get my dick sucked. And I'm snorting coke. Don't fucking bother me with these dumpster fires at three in the morning. So I fucking... Uh, you know, I, it, once it all ended, I got in my car in November of 86 and I left. I don't know what happened to the Aspen Club. I don't know whatever happened to these people. I don't know if they lived or died. It makes no difference to me. But it's just to show you. I tell you these things just to show you the fucking, the, and I was just involved with like little guys. I can't even imagine what the fuck was going up there. But it was everywhere. When I tell you it was, every, and I think everybody was in on it because there was a fucking thing that if the cops, the feds, when they came to town, they stayed at the Red Roof Inn. There was no fucking Uber. What's that shit now where you rent the house with your buddies and nobody knows you're there, whatever the fuck that's called. You know, Airbnb, there wasn't none of that. So, guys, that was the main thing. They'd say when the feds come to town, they stay at the Red Roof Inn and you're not allowed to sell Coke or anything. They were all tied in. This was... This was the biggest conspiracy, and I didn't even touch. I'm just telling you guys, like, the different sizes of this shit. The Aspen Club was fucking in bed with the Snowmass Club. How do, you know, and probably the same owners. I don't know. Go on their website. They're still open. Both those clubs <laughs> are, are still alive and kicking. Fucking the Aspen Club. Barbie Benton used to be there. She's a... A playboy chick from the 80s. I'll never forget. I used to date a girl. And she came home and they said, I took a shower with Barbie Benton. I took a shower with Barbie Benton. She goes, you know, after fucking working out, there's a general area. I go, how did her bush look? She goes, beautiful. I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> fuck, man. So, yeah, I, I don't know much about the cocaine bear. I don't know what's going on with it. I, I didn't write the fucking thing. I'm just telling you that when I lived in Snowmass Village, there was a bear that died from cocaine. This bear does not die. No, if you could look it up on the Aspen Times, I think the Aspen Times only goes back 30 fucking years. So maybe you could find, I don't know, because I tried to get an article from December 24th, 1983. 80, 
1983. I tried to get an article from there years ago. My buddy wrote for them when he was a young guy, like before he became a writer. He had an apprenticeship over there, so I asked him, Mike Roebuck, if he'd get me the article, and he called, and he goes, they, they, they don't go back that far. I would love to get my hands on the cocaine article, the night when I robbed the mall on Christmas Eve, mall gets burglarized on Christmas Eve. Uh, that's why I want. I wanted that article. Yeah, I wanted that article for the book or whatever the fuck's going on. The book's going great. Uh, all hands on deck. I got to change a few names, all that shit, which I fucking knew, you know. And the last thing I want to talk about on a beautiful Monday morning is something I was going through last week. You have realizations in your life, you know. When I did Beauty and the Beast with Felicia. You know, for years, when you listen to different podcasts, comics, a lot of comics will go, you know what, Joey Diaz always checks it, you know. Whether it's a text or a call, I was raised on checking it, you know, and following up, you know. I try to do in a friendship what most people don't do. That's what you need to do, and that's what you need to do in all your adventures, you know. When my parents died, my friends taught me the greatest gift that you could teach somebody, which is the gift of friendship. There's no bigger gift than friendship. You know, your family, you're stuck with them. You know, you can't pick your fucking family. When you look at your mother and she's 100 pounds overweight and she's got that wart coming out of her face with the hair growing out of it, and you're like, how the fuck is this wildebeest my mother? You can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't, you can't fucking, you can't, you know. But... When I learned the value of a friend, you know, when I when my parents died and what those people did for me, I really learned the value of a friend, so I respected friendship. I really did. I respected it more than most guys, you know, and I made a lot of mistakes growing up, but when I realized I was alone in this world, I realized that friends are all you got. You know, once your mom and your dad leaves and your brother gets married, to a lesbian chick and your, your sister gets married to an organ grinder in Seattle and you live in fucking New Jersey, you're not going to see them, you know? So once your parents are gone, you realize that you're alone in this fucking world and that's a, a horrible feeling. You only feel it for like two minutes and you're like, oh, I'm alone, you know? I'm alone in this world. I got no umbilical cord, whatever the fuck they talk about. <laughs> so you look at your friends a lot different. You know, you look at your brother, your brother's great. He's your brother. He's your blood, but they got their own life. And they all got a fucking nasty fat wife with a mole on their face. And you go to yourself, why did he marry that fucking chick with the mole? But it doesn't matter. You just lose. So what you really have in your life are your friends. When I left North Bergen in 1985, I had a handful of fucking friends. Friends that I could breathe for and friends that would breathe for me. They had done it already. I learned a tremendous gift of friendship growing up, and I respected friendship as much as I could. I'll never forget when I did that Beauty and the Beast with Felicia, we had gotten into a conversation about people in L.A. and friends and how you have to treat people. And she was like, you do really well with that. And I go, because I don't have a family, so I have to focus. Now, you have acquaintances, you have friends, and then you have that little inner circle, which is your family, without being your family. You know, you tell your kids they're your uncle, you know, whatever. They're your fucking family. They're who you breathe for. So my biggest accomplishment as a man was keeping in touch with the people who did me right as I was growing up. 
That was my main focus all those years when I was in L.A., and that's what kept me grounded. The reason why I don't drive a Beamer and I don't say amazing and I don't tell you that everything is wonderful is because I stayed grounded. I kept on the phone with my friends, and by listening to what they were talking about, it made everything all right. In my world, me living in Los Angeles was like having a bad job. You, you're doing it until you get to your goal, and then you don't have to deal with these fucking people no more. I didn't know I was involved with these type of people. I just picked my friends over them. And I kept in touch with them. And whenever I came home, we always tried to do a dinner or go out. And I, I I was telling Mike I took pride in that. And when I would come home, there'd be like six of us at dinner. And I'd always go, hey, man, because they'd say, yeah, I haven't seen you. And I'd go, I live in California. Did you just say that you haven't seen him since the last time I came here? And we did dinner. And like, yeah, but they live like fucking 10 miles apart. And I'm like, how does this happen? I would give a fucking finger in L.A. to be able to see you guys once a week, you know? I would give a fucking finger. I'm stuck with all these fucking fake people around me. So, you know, when I every year I come here and it'd be the same thing, and I go, someday I'm going to move back, and I'm going to change all this shit. You motherfuckers are going to see each other every weekend. We're going to smoke pot. We're going to do this. Well, I moved back. And COVID was here at first, you know, and... When you call people, they were concerned about their parents. You know, it was the beginning of COVID when I moved here. So it didn't loosen up till after I was here maybe for six months. And then I got the knee surgery. I was stuck in the house for three or four months. And at that time, I was talking to my friends and stuff like that. And after the knee surgery healed and, you know, things slowed down a little bit, I started doing dinners with, you know, James and my other buddies from North Bergen, we started doing little fucking dinners and stuff like that, but they were always few and far, like they were always a month away, like it was a month, and then we wouldn't talk for another month, and then we'd do it again, and then I hooked up with my eighth grade friends, and that's been fantastic, Louis Hernandez, Dave, Whitey, that's been fucking great, but everybody's got, you know, Whitey's mom passed, everybody's got their issues, so we get along we try to get together as much as possible guys but it's not it's just not fucking feasible you know and it, i was the how wrong was i because i was the first guy that was saying when i come back i'm gonna do all this shit when i come back i don't have two hours i don't have an hour to drive up somewhere sit for an hour and a half and then come back i wish i had that like the other day i was gonna go up to north bergen just to go to rudy's and eat I don't have that anymore. I don't go up to North Bergen like I used to. <clears throat> but my point is that since I've been back here, I've lost a lot of contact with my friends. There was a couple of friends that, listen, 40 years passed, and we changed a ton in 40 years. And I came back, and we just realized that we weren't the same people. And that's okay. I could live with that. When I moved here, the people I thought I was going to see all the time completely different than what happened the friends that i still have from north bergen today are friends that we built our relationship after i moved here and it wasn't about me being in a movie it wasn't about me being stand-up it was that i knew them early on and they wanted to come back in my life and i wanted to be in their life so last week i just had a rough week friendship wise you know like just coming to the conclusion that what that was was 
that was a long fucking time ago. That was 40 fucking years ago, Joey. What do you expect? Do you expect these for us just to jump back in the saddle? And yeah, it might happen once or twice a year and you have to cherish it. And But it was just disappointing to me. It just took a little, lot of wind out of my sails that it was a realization that uh, you try really hard to keep your friends over the years and shit like that, but life takes over and that's okay. That's okay. It's not like we had an argument or we disagreed on something. We talk, we they, we share our sentiments, and we move on, and we try to put dates together. But, guys, it just, you know, with families and kids and holidays and, holidays and jobs and shit like that, it just doesn't work out. So I just had to come to terms with that. I was a little down for a few days about it. But then I went to the fucking festival. I got my little fucking blue belt. And here we are on a Monday morning, ready to sling dick. We got what? We got 20 fucking shoplifting days left. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Christmas is right around the fucking corner. So... That's what's going on right now. I've been having a great time. Thank you for all you guys that are helping me out with uh, Stoner Club. They're doing fucking great. Uh, thank you. They got great fucking reefer. I just got a delivery from them the other day, dog. They gave me some, I don't know what the fuck it was, something in a bag on the top, over the top. Holy shit, it was over the fucking top. And I'm trying to get them some uh, some laughing gas. People are really fucking digging the laughing gas, so I'm happy. But remember, Stoner's Club, they have, just go to the website. Just go to the website. I don't remember all the specials they got, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. Just press an Uncle Joey 10, and I'm going to give you 10% off for fucking life. Mike, that was a great video last week, the way you took it off the shirt. Great fucking job. And that's what's going on. We got to wait a whole fucking month to do a show, the 28th, and uh, we're working on the book. We're healthy, and we're slinging dick, guys. Listen, try to be a good friend, but always know that after a while, there's nothing you can do. We fucking change. We really do change, and we change our perspectives and what we watch and what we listen to, and that's life, guys. We keep fucking evolving. I love you motherfuckers with all my heart. Have a great week, and now for a word from my motherfucking sponsor, Jack. All right, you bad motherfuckers. Thank you for taking my ear beating today. I had a good time. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, if life came with a user manual, it would be a lot easier for everybody, but it doesn't. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck navigating a career change, you're moving kids. Listen, it makes you feel uncertain, I get you. Therapists are trained to help you learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing you'll get to a user manual. Listen, I was stuck when I moved here. I was just, you know, I didn't have an answer. But Dana at BetterHelp put it together for me. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and chat sessions. You can choose not to see anybody or you can see somebody. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people, and I'm one of them, with professionally licensed and better therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and we'll match you with a therapist. And if things ain't clicking, you could easily switch to a new therapist. It couldn't be any easier. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Go to BetterHelp.com right now. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Diaz. Again, that's BetterHelp.com 
slash Diaz. And this Saturday, cocksuckers, get ready for UFC 282. You're going to get paid, laid, and parlayed with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. They got a deal that's going to make your fucking asshole hairs fly out of the fucking spectrum. This Saturday, new customers can bet just $5 on a pre-fight money line on any fighter to win and get 150 in free bets when they do. I'm watching Darren Till and I'm definitely watching Bryce Mitchell this weekend. But right now, everybody could earn up to 50% boost when you place the same game parlay on UFC 282. Download the app right now. Use promo code Joey. Bet $5 this weekend. Money line on any fighter to win and get 150 if they do. That's code Joey this Saturday at DraftKings Sportsbook. The official sports betting partner of the UFC. But it don't stop there. We got Monday Night Football tonight. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Enter code Joey. And let's get this party started. I want to thank DraftKings. I want to thank BetterHelp.com. But most importantly, I want to thank you guys. I'll see you Wednesday, Thursday morning. Tip top motherfucking Magoo. Love you.